Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. This is episode 34 of First Gen Burden, another special drop. I feel like I've done enough special drops to constitute its own season so far, uh, to be honest, but this is really special because it features a lot of the people that I work with daily over at Viacom and the MTV, VH1, CMT, and Logo teams. We recorded this live on September 19th over the Viacom building in Times Square for a special week of inclusion content uh, over at Viacom, and it was a pleasure and an honor to be a part of those proceedings. Um, There are five really special people from all over the world that I have the pleasure of sharing the halls with that are featured on this episode. It was a really packed room, as you'll hear, um, and we made it a really safe space so that we could share our stories and talk to each other and talk to each other about how our families got here. I know that I learned a ton, and I'm sure that we all learned a ton. The stories got super real, which I love, and it means that we're communicating. That's a big deal nowadays. Also, just FYI, I go through some live intro stuff in the beginning, and I go through two definitions of the term first-generation immigrant. I just wanted to clarify, too, for the listener, that this isn't just about citizens. It's really about anyone who's residing here. Just wanted to make sure that that's clear and that the podcast is about anyone who wants to live here because all are welcome. Know what I'm saying? So without further ado, here's First Generation Conversation, the MTV VH1 CMT and Logo Edition. So hey, everyone. Welcome to First Generation Conversation. Round of applause. So this is an afternoon of stories, specifically five stories with people that you know, your coworkers and people that you love. They're from all over the world, literally. The hope and the goal is to get to know a little bit about our friends and our coworkers and hopefully get a better idea of what it can mean to be American. Because the one thing that we all have in common here is that we all identify as first-generation immigrants. So I'll just give you half of a story, a fragment of a story. If you don't know me, my name is Rich Tu. I'm a VP of digital design here at MTV, VH1, CMT, and Logo. Um, My parents came from the Philippines in the 60s, and uh, they left because their parents had died. And my dad, uh, he's the youngest of nine. My mom is the oldest of 10. And they came uh, separately. They met here. They came so they could actually get a job in America and get money, send money back home to the Philippines um, so they could help support these massive, really big families. And that's actually a pretty, uh, pretty normal occurrence in the Philippines. One thing that they won't tell you about that country, on paper anyway, is that one of its biggest exports is people. So uh, I see that a lot of heads nodding. Um, And it's true, they they exist within that caretaker space. So I had the the wonderful, uh, fortunate uh, upbringing uh, over in New Jersey with some loving parents. We're a bit of a blended family as well. I have three siblings. Two sisters, one older brother, same dad, three different moms, and we all make it work. It's really, uh, really beautiful, really awesome. Also, a lot of family members in the creative space as well. And fast forward to modern day, 
I wanted to start a podcast called First Generation Burden. Um, I've been doing it for about four years. It's just been a personal project. I do it on my spare time, do it on the weekends, whenever I can. And uh, this is actually the 34th recording of that. Um, I wanted to elevate immigrant stories in this country, specifically in New York, and specifically around people that I knew and I loved. And this is a beautiful extension of that. And you guys are also a beautiful extension of that. So thank you and kudos for your energy right now. Also, of course, I can't forget the thank yous. Definitely want to thank Jacqueline for making this possible. want to thank Amy, Rory, Thomas for making all of us welcome here in this safe space, especially during Inclusion Week. also want to thank Annie, Tim G. Um, I want to thank Francesca, of course. Like Everyone like really worked super hard to make this happen. It's a beautiful thing. And just want to go through a couple of terms to help clarify. There are two definitions, technically, for first-generation immigrant, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And we haven't landed on one. So you can either be a naturalized immigrant, meaning that you came here and received citizenship after coming to America, or you can be the descendant of a naturalized immigrant. So it's either the parents or the kids. And everyone here is one of those. All right, so also just a couple of notes. Please hold any questions until the end. We're going to go through these individual stories and then we're going to open it up. And also we're being recorded for posterity, so energy and whoops, that's a good thing. All right? <laughs> so are we excited? Yeah. <laughs> Got through that first card, that's good. Okay, so for our first guest... No pressure. Uh, no pressure. Uh, she is a senior supervising producer for Brand Creative and TV and VH1. Let's, hey, let's all give it up for Misha Brea. So, Misha, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, so, the way we begin this podcast is tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Okay. i Misha Brea. I am born and raised in New York, Manhattan's Upper West Side. Um, my parents came over from Cuba and Dominican Republic, respectively. They met on the Upper West Side. Um, my dad happened to be my mom's brother's best friend. So... Sometimes it works out very well. Um, and uh, yeah, grew up on the Upper West Side. I have one sister. She's 10 years younger than me. So I think if she were sitting here, her experience would be very, very different just because it was 10 years later after my parents had kind of learned and grown and kind of achieved the American dream as mm -hmm. opposed to building towards it when I was little. Um, what else can I tell you? <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the cultural diaspora that you experienced growing up in the Upper West Side, and also like you were such an um, amazing example of a convergence of several different cultures, um, also in a very diverse area. Can you tell us a little bit about that upbringing? Yeah, the Upper West Side, when I was growing up, I think at the time was actually the most diverse neighborhood in Manhattan. Um, when my parents came, it was very much West Side Story, so it was very uh, heavily uh, Latinx community and Irish communities, and their, so their friends, even to this day, their friend group really reflects that. Um, can, can you actually explain to the group uh, the term Latinx? Because that, that is a term that some people may not know. So basically, the Spanish language is based off of uh, male and female pronouns, and everything has a male or female pronoun, and as we kind of grow as a community and are inclusive and people have different pronouns, we've started to adopt Latinx, so it's neither male nor female. Fair? Yeah. Good? Very fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so yeah, by the time I think I grew up, the neighborhood, um, there's a very, very heavy Jewish influence on the Upper West Side as well. Um, so I had friends that were of all shapes, sizes, colors, and backgrounds, although none of them actually a similar background to mine. Um, and it didn't matter. Like, it didn't matter at all. I never grew up in a place that felt uncomfortable. I never felt other until I kind of got to college. Even in, like, progressive public schools in New York City that I went to, everybody seemed to be different, and that was okay. It was also New York in the 90s, so different was cool. You mm -hmm. didn't want to be like everybody else. You wanted to be individualized. Uh, and Have I you gone to public school the entire time? I went to public school up until college. So I went to a little place called CPE, which was in East Harlem, mm -hmm. um, but was a very progressive school. A lot of kids from Riverdale, a lot of kids from the Upper West Side went there. I went to a junior high school called the Computer School on the Upper West Side. Again, kids from all over uh, the neighborhood, very progressive, very artsy. And then I went to fame school for high school. So <laughs> dancing and drama and art and all of that. Oh. Uh, fun I don't stuff. know if we talked about that during the rehearsal. You went to fame school? Uh, yes, <laughs> I did. Was the logo everywhere? <laughs> the logo wasn't everywhere, but we did dance on the tables in the cafeteria. True story. Awesome. Awesome. I, did, I didn't personally, but there was dancing oh, on the tables. That's in the such cafeteria. a great emotional promise of that school. Uh, so uh, I just want to speak a little bit about rebellion. Yeah. Um, because uh, you, yeah, you rebelled in a very interesting way. When I wanted to rebel when I was a kid, I just took my parents' car and went to the mall. But you did something very different and way smarter. Um, yeah, my parents actually kind of started the rebellion. My mom itself, my parents were both raised very, very kind of strict Catholic. And as my mom had to go to Catholic school. And so she was kind of like, well, my kids are never going to do that. So she was kind of a badass. She was a bit of a hippie. My parents' friends were very, very radical, um, very leftist, anti-war kind of whole thing. Um, and I was raised very, very strict in terms of school. And you know, like I wasn't allowed to watch television unless it was PBS or I could watch old movies with my mom. Mm -hmm. um, the big joke in my family is if they had let me watch television, I'd probably be a lawyer and not working in television. <laughs> um, but they were kind of very rebellious. I didn't, we grew up Catholic, but like Catholic for hippies. And I kind of got thrown into the whole tradition of my family because my grandmother once at brunch said, you know, for God's sakes, Barbara, what if she wants to get married in a church? And then it was all of a sudden I had to go to Sunday school and I was 12 and you can't really tell a 12 year old what you tell a five year old because especially one that's been raised to challenge. So um, I challenged everything. I got kicked out every week. We did that for a few years and then Sunday school was over <laughs> and I kept going. Um, you also learned a language, right? I learned Spanish, yeah. My as rebellion. As rebellion, yes. My, so my parents, between, uh, between the two of them, they speak five languages. My mom speaks French, uh, Spanish, English, and then she took Italian in school. Uh, her parents spoke French and Spanish and then English in America. My dad came here uh, only knowing Spanish and learned English. And then um, as he was kind of progressing in his career, he worked for a Japanese firm. Mm -hmm. So he got immersed in Japanese culture, had to do a immersive language program. So he speaks fluent Japanese. Um, and in my house, we only spoke English. We spoke English. My parents spoke Spanish as a way of me not understanding. You know, mm -hmm. kids, very precocious kids, and you kind of walk by and start to spell things. I think the first thing I learned how to spell was pizza. Um, <laughs> and then I learned Spanish because I wanted to know what they were saying. Wow. And wow. they did not. So 
your parents use Spanish as a way to not tell you things. Yes, to communicate with each other with, without me knowing. And That's it didn't work for very long. Wow. Can you tell us about um, your experience in college and how you landed within a creative culture? Yes. So, I mean, I think I've always been a creative. My parents were creative. My mom was a dancer. My dad did art, and they both kind of gave it up. And you were a dancer too, right? Um, I was. My mom kind of... Pointing toes, pointing Pointing hands. toes, yes. I did ballet. I, they put me in at... Started at three and stopped when a kind of career-defining injury happened at a really bad time. Um, but I was always encouraged to write. Um, I kind of always lived in that creative space. My parents gave it up to be successful. So my mom uh, got a degree in teaching and then works in nonprofit. My dad... Uh, works in insurance. They're both retired now. Um, but I was encouraged to do art, but in a very particular way, in the way that like you can do art and dance and all of that, but also you better get really good grades. <laughs> you better be home on time. You better be the best at it. Like, if you're going to do it, don't just do it. Be the best at it. Yeah. So that was kind of my way of going and got where I was going to go to school and the grades I was going to get was not negotiable. Yeah. And I, I think the biggest fight in my life was going to like a tiny hippie <laughs> college with no grades instead of going to Columbia. That was, that was Instead my, of Columbia. Oh, that was, yeah. That was where I was going. That's what we were going to so do. So where did you go? I went to Hampshire College, Amherst, Massachusetts, 1,100 kids on a mountaintop, 13 students of color. I think wow. five of us were Americans. Wow. Very different. High altitude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, need the oxygen. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about something that, that struck me yesterday was you said you grew up not feeling Spanish enough and not feeling black enough. Oh, definitely. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I think in a, in a world where, or I should say in America, I, I feel like I constantly, even now, people are trying to define like what kind of brown you are. Like, which brown are you? What kind of black are you? And even in school, um, you know, as diverse as it was, there were still groups and my particular group was very diverse. But, you know, the... Black girls were kind of like, oh, do you want to come jump double dutch? And I'm not very good at double dutch. And then Spanish girls were like, I don't, I understand Spanish. I can read it. I'm not very good at writing it, but I don't speak it very well. I was kind of discouraged with my accent, with my family, kind of made fun of. So like, I don't really feel comfortable speaking Spanish. So that wasn't really the place for me. And that wasn't really the place for me. And so I kind of had to make my own place. Like if nobody's going to, you're not going to fit in anywhere. You're going to fit in everywhere. You're right. going to make your own path and take pull people with you, kind of. Right. So kind of that was how I, I learned how to speak up. Wow. Um, as a takeaway for these beautiful people, can you tell us a little bit about how they can potentially uh, pull away and or uh, find themselves within a, a world that they're still forming around them? Sure. I think maybe. <laughs> um, I will say it has a lot to do with my background. I mean, I come from a long line of like just badass women. So one of the things that I was always taught is like, if you need something, you need to learn how to ask for it. You need to learn how to go get it. Nobody's going to give it to you just because you're there. So part of that has kind of always been with me. And in, in not fitting in, um, you have to figure out who you are, right? So it, it constantly being questioned and constantly trying to, to navigate a space that isn't for you, the only thing I could do is look inward, right? So, okay, so I'm black and I'm Latina and I like 
rock music and skateboarding and I live in this neighborhood and I like to hang out with these kids. Okay. So I'm just going to listen to what I listen to. I'm going to do what I do. When people are like, why do you like that? I'm like, because it's cool. And that was just like, what are you going to say to that? No, it's not? Okay. Sure. <laughs> like I got relentlessly made fun of for wearing boy sneakers when I was in school because girl sneakers were pink and I don't like pink. And now I wear boy sneakers because they're cool and I like them. And what is anybody going to say about it? Nothing. They're not going to say anything. <laughs> Misha, thank you so much. Thank you. Doing a little bit of a roundabout. All right, everybody. So our second guest today, she's the senior director of consumer marketing. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Love the whoops. More whoops, please. Uh, leading consumer strategy, advertising, and promotional efforts for MTV VH1 CMT brands. Everybody give a warm round of applause for Antonia Baker. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So, Antonia, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Um, so, Antonia Baker. Um, my parents immigrated here in the probably early early 80s. They got married in Jamaica very young um, and immigrated to the Bronx, BX. Um, so BXers? BXers, what? What? Oh. Um, so quiet, quiet contingent in the back. Oh, my God. Um, born and raised there for, um, you know, for all my life. Been a lifelong New Yorker. Um, grew up in the North Bronx, so there I went to school. Actually, went to college here in Riverdale. I mean, it's still the Bronx, but it's Riverdale. Right, right. Um, so Bronx adjacent. Bronx adjacent, yeah. So um, went to college up there. Um, basically, been in New York all my life, but you know, travel everywhere. So I feel like I kind of like take it over the world. So right. Yeah. How many siblings do you have? I have, uh, so all of us, there's four of us. There's an older sister, she's right. a nurse practitioner. There's a brother, he's 11 months younger than me. We call each other like um, Irish twins, is that right? <laughs> um, and then I have a younger sister who's three years younger than me. Gotcha. Something that we have in common is that in the 80s, our families started emigrating here. Mm -hmm. um, I know that when I was growing up, my mom helped bring over all her nine other siblings into the big family house. Mm -hmm. Everyone graduated out of the family house, saw those families grow and evolve. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to see your family grow in front of your eyes um, with, you know, here's a, here's a new auntie, here's your new uncle, here's a new right. everybody. What is that like? Well, everybody existed already. So my brother had, my father has 13 brothers and sisters, and then um, it's Jamaica. They, you know, and he grew up in the country, so they went to bed early. My grandparents went to bed early, so they had nothing else to do. Um, so 13 brothers and sisters, and then my mom's side, she had a brother and you know, a sister, but they have different fathers. So um, when my parents came over here, they came over for opportunity. But then all, all the siblings came over here as well, and then some migrated, stayed in Jamaica, some migrated to England. So half my family's in England, half is in Jamaica, and half is here. Right. So I Which kinda, is kind of common. It's just kind of common. So yeah. there's like a, a Queens chapter of the Bakers, and then there's a Brooklyn chapter of the Bakers. So you have a tribe here. Right. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, or speak a little bit about the nuance of uh, West Indian culture? Because mm -hmm. it's so unique here, it's so prevalent here, it's beautiful here, but then it's not prevalent everywhere else. Can you speak a little bit about, like, in your travels and in your life? Right. So, growing up in the Bronx, that, especially the North Bronx, and if there's patches in Brooklyn, and especially where you go in New York City, there's, like, West Indian culture. So, where I grew up in the North Bronx, it's 
West Indians as African Americans, over the tracks as Irish, but mostly I grew up in a West Indian neighborhood. So growing up in public schools, that's who I was surrounded by and everything like that. So, you know, we're very prideful people, um, especially there's like sometimes there's island competition. Jamaicans feel like they're the best in some Somebody's like, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so, so it's in that culture, everybody, but you all have the same experience. And, you know, a lot of people came over for opportunity. Right. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that come over and buy businesses and not really got into corporate culture because you know you want to make it yourself. The only time that I actually experienced my only experience is when I went to college. And that's kind of shocking because I was, did go to Riverdale um, for a school in Manhattan College. Right. But it was, I was in classes where I was the only black person. So it was the first time I was actually in experience where I was just like, oh my God, like there's no one that looks like me. And then from right. there, um, going through my work experiences, I've always been the only. So right. that was a, you know, adjustment for me to sure. learn cultures and to learn how to navigate around that. Um, and also I was like, where is everybody? Like I always wondered where everybody else was at. That's Either they, where is everybody? Where is everybody? So a lot of times it was like they, you know, went off to different states or, right. you know, they just didn't, you know, a lot of people did not come up with me and go to college and they just went and do blue collar jobs. So right. um, that was a very different experience for me. And uh, can you speak a little bit about how busy you were at the time too? I remember you were, yesterday you were telling me that you were doing all this stuff yeah. at the exact same time. I don't know how you manage any of it. I'm so, I presume that it helps you today. Yeah, um, so I got scholarships at other colleges, but my mom was like, I really want you to stay home because we grew up very religious and she just wanted to make sure she had her eyes on us. So <laughs> she was like, if you stay home, I'll get you a used car. So I was like, fine. Oh. Um, you got a used car? Yeah, she got me a used car. And what I had kind a little, of car? It was a, um, a Camry. I called her Jenny. Um, and then, <laughs> and I also had a little boyfriend, so I didn't mind like staying home in New York City. So I did that for a little while, but my mother is a branch librarian of a New York public library. So she, um, who's a library friend? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Shout, out, shout out to libraries. Shout out to reading and education. So New York Public Library. And then also my dad was a branch um, branch manager of Bank Lumi, like an old bank. There's like one branch still open in uh, Midtown, but he did that at night. So, um, you know, he would work at night. My mother would work during the day and then they would pass like ships in the night. Right. So, you know, if we're coming home from school, my dad will watch us, right, at five o'clock and then my mom will come home and then he will say hello to each other and they go each other's ways and my father will come home at three, three o'clock in the morning. So I kind of learned their hustle from them yeah. because I did go to Manhattan College, but then my mother got me a job as a page at the library. I did that. And I also had an internship in, um, in the city, I said the city, here. Like, oh, um, right, right over there? Right over here. Yeah. So I would do that two days a week. So I had, I had kind of liked to learn my hustle very early. Right. Um, I didn't have a campus experience. You know, didn't hang out after, after school or anything like that because I had to get to my internship. I had to get to my second job because right. I had to pay for my books and all those kind of things. So that's where I kind of like learned my grit and hustle from, right. but also growing up in the streets in the Bronx too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, th I think what's something interesting um, about about you and your lineage and your family is that the expectation of an immigrant family, I think, that is nuanced but isn't always understood, is that there is meant to be at least two leaps. Mm -hmm. There's the one major leap of leaving home and then going to the new place, but then also there's the expectation of the next generation to take that additional right. leap that is different from home. Correct. So it's two leaps. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I joke with my dad all the time because every time he calls me, he's like, where are you now? And um, I'm like, oh, I, you know, I went to this, or I'm traveling for that. And he goes, you know, it's so good to see you guys doing great because your, par your 
parents go through hell for you to give you heaven, the children heaven. And that really touched me a lot because I think a lot of times um, I think I have struggled, but they really went through struggle. Like my parents grew up, you know, very young. My, I don't I don't remember them socializing or having a great time and different things like, like the way I'm living. Yeah. So I know that they sacrificed for me. And then also too, like, you know, to see their success, like coming to America, he wanted to make sure that we knew that American dream. You know, he was like, I came here to give you, he always, he always laughs. The sequel's says, coming out soon. Right, he yeah. always says to me, Shout like, to I left a legacy for you guys because he, you know, retired at 40. He bought all these businesses, all these homes in um, the North Bronx and made a business out of, you know, flipping a lot of real estate and was able to go to, you know, Florida right now. And he has like 40 homes and do all that kind of stuff. So he wants us to follow in his footsteps. Yeah. Everybody has their past. Yeah. Um, so I kind of learned my hustle from him, but it's like, he sees himself as a success, and I do see him as a success because he didn't go to college. He came here, he's taught us, education was very paramount and everything like that. And we're very smart people because of him. And a lot of times I'm just like, when I was growing up, I was like, why is he so hard on both of them? So hard on us to stay in the house and to study and those all this kind of stuff. But when I look back, I'm really grateful for that because it made me the person I am. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so something that you touched on earlier was finding your voice. Yeah. Could you, I know you have a mantra in the morning, <laughs> if you want to tell these people. But also, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how we can find our voice? Um, yeah, because you kind of need a mantra when you walk into work. Just in, just even dealing with the day, you kind of need something to, to keep you balanced. So my mantra is to stay vibrant, stay fearless, and stay fly. So um, <laughs> We can give that a round of applause. <laughs> Just the experience of being the only in the place, like I felt like I've um, had to learn to find my voice again um, because I held it back for such a long time because I felt like I couldn't be who I was. Sure. But if I'm a unicorn in a place, that is my uniqueness. So why am I holding that back? And I feel like a lot of times when I am in, in experiences, people do want to hear from me. So why am I being quiet? So, you know, there's times when you start in new places where you feel like you can't say what you want to say, but it's like you kind of have to remind yourself where you came from, what you have to offer in your authenticity, because that's what you have to offer the world. I love that. Yeah. Antonia, thank you so much. So good. <laughs> Are we having fun? Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right, everyone. So our next guest, the Director of Business Planning and Production Operations for MTV, VH1, CMT, and Logo. Everyone give, give a warm round of applause to Tanya O'Neill. <laughs> All right, so Tanya, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Um, my name is Tanya, obviously. Um, I was born and raised in Ireland uh, until I was about four, turning five. Um, and then my parents made their way to Babylon, New York, on Long Island. A <laughs> uh, very exotic place. <laughs> um, Never heard of it. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, um, I grew up, uh, my first like memories of my life are in Ireland. Um, I still, my whole entire family still lives there. Um, yeah. Me and my, I have five brothers, um, four of which are half brothers, one has been with me during the whole journey. Sure, sure. Um, and everyone else is there. So we have a very small imprint in the United States. So what I think is so interesting about this conversation as well as like your context is, I think traditionally, 
as Americans, we think about uh, the Irish immigration wave um, from uh, much earlier, being like uh, one of the original waves, I think specifically within the 1920s and also um, even earlier than that. I was looking up a stat the other day. Uh, let me find that stat. So um, 33 million Americans, that's 10.1% of the total population, they self-identify as being of Irish ancestry. According, uh, this is since 2017. All on right. St. Patrick's Day or every other day? <laughs> <laughs> well, on St. Patrick's Day, I think it's 112%. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, but that's in comparison to the 6.6 million uh, population of Ireland. Right. So that's, that's really interesting, right? Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up as a native, native Irish born in the States? So I'm not an American citizen. I have a green card. I can't vote. Um, I'm not technically American, but I'm allowed to be here. Uh, <laughs> please don't call us. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're so American my, to all of us. Yes. I mean, I'm super American. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm very Long Island. Um, <laughs> oh, that's America. <laughs> um, so my parents, you know, we came here in 1990. And um, like you said, it's a, it was a different time because... In the 80s, as well as America and Ireland, the economy was, you know, teetering on the edge of new, like, technological advances. But also, the problem with Ireland is everyone kind of goes to a trade school. So it's not like you can major in university. You can if you're wealthy, and my parents weren't. Um, so they both went to culinary school. Um, they don't cook good food, though. Um, um, sorry. And... Um, there, was, there wasn't a lot of jobs for that because how many like chefs and whatever, you could you don't have a future in it there. So my dad came first um, in 1988. and um, By himself. By himself. So my brother and I stayed back with my mom. And while my mom's task while he was in the States was to work on getting our green card. So we were about two hours away from the American embassy. So she would have to travel with me and my brother, who's six years older than I am, um, those two hours, you know, by, she didn't have a car. Yeah. So it's just like, and it's not the internet, so you don't have all the right paperwork. So you could get there, and they're like, right. nope, you don't have this. Wrong. Go home. And yeah. then she's like, okay, I got to go do that again. Um, and then my dad was here working, like, odd jobs. He was a server, which he was really bad at. Uh, he was a landscaper, which he was good at. And then ultimately, he became, like, a mechanic. Um, he got a job at a, a bus company in Babylon, um, and that's where he, he worked for a really long time. Um, and he would, like, send us over, like, toys and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we were separated for like two years. Wow. Um, so that was like a lot of my early memories. Like, unfortunately, my dad's not like in them because he was here. Sure. You know, trying to make it better for us. So. Yeah. No. Yeah. That that's a very common immigrant experience. Yeah. yeah the split parentals. Yeah. And then trying to get the funds in order to get everyone there. Yeah. Um, what was it like once you did arrive? Um, it was interesting. I, I noticed the difference more when I was older, yeah. uh, just a bit like, um, cultural references. Like my husband always makes fun of me. Like I just saw Jurassic Park for the first time, like <laughs> when I was 28, he was like, what did you do as a child? And I was like, I wasn't a child. Like <laughs> we didn't, um, and like Fraggle Rock and all the things you guys probably watched when you were younger. I, did, I watched Bosco and that was it. Um, That's Bosco. It's this little wooden guy. Okay. He's really interesting. He's got like okay. red hair. Um, does anyone know Bosco now? You do? Uh, oh, perfect. Oh. I love Bosco. There we go. Um, oh. Yeah. Bosco fam. All right. <laughs> um, Team Bosco, let's go. Yeah, that was like really, and I know we had talked like when we were talking. Um, yeah. 
that um, we really tried to tried to blend in when we got here. Yes, like yes. we weren't all about telling people that we were not from here. Like my parents were like, "You're American. That's it. Don't tell anyone about your green card. You have all your shots. Just go, and you're fine." <laughs> <laughs> I was like a puppy. Um, so it was different because I spent a lot of time trying to prove myself yeah. as um, just being, you know, a normal white girl, and I didn't have anything interesting about me. Um, so it, it was difficult because when we first got here, I did like Irish step dancing and I would do like Gaelic lessons and yeah. stuff like that. And my friends were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just hanging out with my parents, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing great. But it was weird about the Babylon community. And I don't know if anyone knows Long Island very well, but there's like Hibernian halls within certain communities on okay. Long Island. And it's like where the Irish go. Um, so Got that's it. where, like, I would do, like, the dance oh, lessons. like, like a club, yeah, type, like, like a I think there's, like, type yeah, of like thing. a moose lodge you gotcha, guys have. Gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha, yes. Right? Is that yeah. not a thing? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was it. Um, but, well, yeah. You know moose so, lodges. Yeah, We've all seen I, the Flintstones. You know what a moose is lodge is. Is that what it's from? Uh, anyway. No, it goes way back okay. before them. Um, so, yeah, I would do that. And there was, like, yeah. kind of a community there. So a lot of my parents' friends here yes. were from Ireland. Yes, so yes. it felt like I was leading kind of like a double life a little right. bit. But, yeah. Can you speak a little bit about what... Um, about the current relationship that you and your family have with your immigrant identities. Because what, what I love is that the immigrant identity is something that um, that is really open to anyone. Like even if we were, if I were to leave the United States, I would be an immigrant in another right. country. So that's not, some, it's something that you can really claim and take pride in. Can you speak a little bit about your current uh it's um it's conflicting you know especially in like today's world um you know you don't there's certain people that are immigrants and they come from a certain place and you know they're going through a struggle that is 20 times more than what my my parents got on a plane and we got here and we were poor but then we're fine you know it's not like being locked in a cage you know what i mean like it's just it's um yeah, you struggle story. with it because you feel guilty like you're not an immigrant enough, but then you don't want to like disrespect your family by by belittling what they did to build their lives here. Um, but yeah, I think it's a constant struggle, especially like with trying to, you know, fit in with such a diverse panel when you feel like the blandest well, you're person. You're bringing that diversity as well. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, like, that out of, like, you know, all of us, like, I'm the only one that's not a citizen. And I'm sure if you did, like, a panel and everyone guessed, you probably wouldn't have picked right. me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, it, it's a struggle. It's a, I want to be proud. I love being Irish. It's really all that I am. But, like I said, we, we hit it for a really long time. Like, even when I was, was calling my dad just to confirm years, he was like, what are you doing? Who are you talking to? Don't, don't, don't mention your green card. You're, you're, I'm like, oh dad, I'm paying my taxes. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Um, so yeah, it's a struggle. It's a struggle, but a struggle with pride and something that I respect and I feel very proud to be up here with all of everyone talking about it. Is there anything that you can say as words of support to someone that might be in a position either looking for their visa. I know that I've written a lot of recommendation letters over the past couple of years, and I'm sure a lot of people here have, or someone who is trying to get their green card. Is there anything that you can say, even if it's just emotionally supportive? I mean, don't stop doing it. Like my, what I said, my mom ran into a lot of hurdles. Thankfully, we're in 2019, so you don't have to drive two hours. You can fill out the paperwork online. But something that is super interesting that's kind of on the long, on the, along the lines of green cards is I've actually been looking into getting my citizenship, and they make it really, really difficult. So um, your best bet is to talk to someone who's gone through the process um, and 
a lawyer if you can afford it, um, because there are a lot of tricky um, nomenclature that they use yes. to confuse you. Lawyerisms, legalism. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it just keep trying because you know, as long as you have a good support system and you're knowledgeable on it, like read as much as you can, you can do it. Yeah. yeah. You can do it. <laughs> Tanya, thank you so much. Okay. All right. I feel like we're making a really great time. Yeah. <laughs> so for our next guest, uh, he is a producer and editor, uh, which we affectionately call Predator. Uh, <laughs> producer, editor, producer, editor. <laughs> uh, so uh, the producer editor on VH1's promo team. Um, please give a warm uh, round of applause to Rusan Ivanov. So, Rusan, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Sure. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, I was born and raised in Russia. I, you'll hear my accent a lot. Um, I spent 18 years in the village on a farm with my parents. We uh, planted potatoes, had all type of animals and uh, I did farm work. So um, long story short, eventually I was able to enter the university in a nearby city, which was I think two hours away. Oh, can, um, we, can we take yeah. one step back? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so in Russia, you grew up in Chubashia. Yeah, it's a small, it's small very republic. Small. Very small. Uh, the village was basically 12 households, one road. Um, basically could drive a car without a permit or anything because there's no police. How, um, so, um, how, how many people, what's the population of that town, do you think? It's basically, imagine, 12 families. 12 families. Yeah, life expectancy was not that high, so it, it was, you know, changing a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'll be surprised the stories you'll hear about the village people. Um, but, yeah, I was working for a collective farmer. Um, Can I you tell us a little bit about life on the farm? What was, what was uh, it day to day? Because that's a unique experience I don't think a lot of us here have. It's, it sounds probably crazy, but it's actually very prehistoric. We would have like, you know, shovel and plant, plant potatoes by um, hand, um, you know, pick apples, strawberries, tomatoes. Uh, I would kill a chicken in the morning and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So there was a pig that was my friend and I was riding it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cats, um, yeah, and I had friends, and we we would play on, on the fields. We ran around. We did. I don't know how we didn't die, cause like, it, yeah, it was fun. Uh, I, uh, we, we fished. Uh, we would go to forest, pick mushroom, mushrooms that we didn't didn't know if we were supposed to eat. But we yeah, right. yeah, it was. Like and that. here you are. Yeah, you <laughs> ate those mushrooms. Did all right. Yeah, I made it. Um, <laughs> so then it changed uh, when. I think I was 18 or 19, I entered the university, I passed the test, uh, it was free for me to study. There was probably a quota for diversity, village people, um, I don't know how I entered. Uh, I did study, I was okay student, it was, I was not bad. And that's where I met people that are not same that, uh, as I was. It, it wasn't regular people for me, I'm like, oh wow, people are different actually. Uh, it wasn't as diverse of course, but um, I, I met cool people, it was at least, uh, Children like of richer parents who travel to the U.S. on these programs uh, where you can work for three months in the U.S.A. and come back and 
make some money, of course, yeah. um, and see the States. And of course, even in the village, we had the TV. It was two channels with, um, it was black and white TV with propaganda, of course. It's back in 80s and 90s. But they did show the buildings of New York City. So I thought the US was that. Glass buildings all over. Um, so yeah, I had this feeling that I did not belong to the village. Like the people was boring and I was kind of like, <laughs> I need to expand. So um, it, it was not easy, but the village raised money for me to go to the US and apply for the program. Yeah, it was $1,200, including ticket. Um, so, are, are you, because that's an incredible act of love. Yeah, oh, it is. Are you comfortable telling a little bit about a, a horrible act of hate? Oh, yeah. So, uh, clearly, we all know how um, homophobic Russia is. So, while I was studying in the university, do we want sad stories? Um, I, think, yeah? I, okay. I think honesty and authenticity okay. is. Yeah, I would like to share. Um, so clearly when meeting cool and different people meant I, I met this group of gay people and uh, there was, you know, some feminist girls and it was it kind of was so cool. So we hang out and a lot of times we would go to um, this uh, Volga River in Russia. It's huge and there's, we were on the like, bank of it. So uh, we were spending, I think, overnight time in our tents, you know, having drinks. And then there was another group of people next to us who originally was okay with us and they're like, oh yeah, kind of cool. There was a moment in Russia where it was cool to be gay. Uh, and at night, I don't know what happened. I was asleep in a tent. Somebody purposely ran me over with a car two times, trying to kill me. And clearly I don't remember what happened after. So I, it was big PTSD for me. So like losing trust in humanity and people generally. Um, but then a, a group of great people came together yeah. to help get you yeah, out of there, right? So clearly, I was helped. I was in the hospital. I didn't walk for some time, and somehow survived. And a lot of people did not believe that happened because nothing was broken for some reason. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So resilient. Yeah. So I, of course, I have a lot of uh, feelings towards the country that you know made me feel this way. But uh, I went on this program to the U.S. and um, the funny story about it, like I stepped out in Newark. I did not know anything about U.S. I did not even read about it. I didn't speak English. And uh, people who I was, uh, the group of other students, they took me on a train to New York and I was by New Yorker hotel and I called my mom complaining that they flew me to some fucking Newark. <laughs> and I, uh, We're the skyscrapers. What's yeah, going on here? I'm like, well, I don't know yeah. what's happening, but I need, I need it to be in your lease. Subway, there's a Kennedy fried chicken. Yeah. That's literally all there is. Yeah, there's McDonald's right in front of it. And I'm like, I don't know. I was complaining. I did not know what's happening. But uh, same day, I had to go to New Orleans because for this program, you have to have an um, employer um, job offer. So original job offer was in New Orleans. I did not know what New Orleans is. So I went to Penn Station, I think, and some random Ukrainian dude who spoke Russian, just like, what, you, you seem lost? Like, he, bought, he buys me a ticket, like, with my money and everything, but, like, I couldn't explain. I, I don't remember exactly. I spent, I think, 12 or 24 hours on, on a bus with four connections, not knowing that you're supposed to take out your suitcase and recheck. <laughs> so I did arrive to New Orleans, for some reason, through Orlando. Uh, <laughs> Not understanding. Somehow, like, I transferred the buses. I don't know how. Uh, and um, in New Orleans, of course, I realized there's no bag. Um, 
I didn't speak English, uh, but I had my passport and $200 with me. So life was great. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, 2005. In New Orleans? In New Orleans. So um, because I had a job offer, they had connection with this broker, brokers, realtor people, whoever, they were Russian. So they uh, hooked me up with this studio on Canal Street in the center with uh, six or eight other students who did the same thing. And it was a nice studio. We had a pool on the top. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I started working. So uh, pretty much, I think, month and a half after that, Katrina hit. So, uh, and, um, and how long have you been in America by this point? I think a month and a half. A month and a half. Yeah. Or two, maybe. Like I started speaking English because my job required to understand what people want from me because I was busting tables and, you know. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed partying because clearly before that I never like been to a gay bar like or like any type of bar. And you know, my first flight was Moscow to New York. I never been in the air, so like it's, everything was happening for me. And young, I was young. I was tw twenty, good looking, and people. Yeah, not that good looking, but I was getting free drinks. I was getting free drinks. <laughs> so I loved New Orleans, well, loved, yeah. and I met a lot of uh, great friends, new people, Americans who actually started changing my points of view, my perspectives to the world. And uh, yeah, that's I think that's the biggest point when diversity happened to me, when I realized what, what it is and how it affects people. So, Katrina, uh, we did not go to Superdome. We knew it's coming. We were crazy. We stayed in our building. Um, stayed, didn't go to the Superdome. Did not go anywhere. Like, we had alcohol and cigarettes. That's all we cared. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Katrina was really Essentials. crazy. Yeah. The, being in the middle and hearing what's happening inside the apartments, we were in the hallway of a bank building. Uh, and I said it before, we opened the door a little bit just to see how it is. And I think it was a mattress floating around the apartment. Like, yeah, so the windows were broken, and you could not be outside. At some point uh, before it was stage five or whatever, we went to the pool, and water was coming up from the pool. It was serious. So, but for us, okay, sure, excitement. Uh, next day, uh, there was no water. Uh, nothing happened yet, so we went outside. Uh, a lot of girls, for some girls, I don't know why, went stealing stuff from the shops. And it was skimpy outfits, Russian girls. I don't know why. Like, <laughs> nothing against. I'm just like, I don't know. The, the guys, we just, we got alcohol and cigarettes again just to make sure we have, you know, important You had stuff. to re-up on the essentials, yeah. yes. At least yes. told us you can take anything you want food-wise. Like, you need water right. free. Right. Uh, I didn't mention that, like, th there was a scary part. There was a lot of people shooting ATMs, trying to open them. Right. There was uh, people with their guns by their stores, so nobody. It was not uh, right. super safe, but we didn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And tomorrow happened, and it was water. We couldn't leave the building. It was so high; it's probably like this. You had to swim. Wow. Uh, and so how did how did you end up back in New York from Newark? Yeah, I think it's New York to New yeah. York to New Orleans. Yeah. How do you find so your way back here? So it was here? evacuation that night. Uh, People came in, they took us out right away. We were driven to Houston first, then I spent a month in Mobile, Alabama, and um, that's where I realized the small town living is not for me. So then my friend from New York City texted me, like, listen, or called, then back then it was, like, I think, flip phone, sorry. Uh, <laughs> he's like, I'm here in, on the same program, but I'm like in New York right now. Can you, do you want to meet up and party? So, <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
party through anything. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, oh, the pool's overflowing. There's uh, more pool. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh my God. Of course, I thought I haven't been to New York yet, so might, might as well go. And uh, I flew and... Uh, I mentioned Mo and people in Mobile Alabama were so nice. They actually all went uh, to air to the airport, like at least 20 people, just to wish wow. me goodbye. Wow! I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, I flew to New York. We met up with my friend, and uh, uh, this, this comes to the decision for me to stay in the U.S. It's because of the New York City because I looked at it once, and it was done for me. It's not, it wasn't money. It wasn't success. It was the city and the people and the, and the energy. Wow. And uh, that's when, uh, also because of Katrina, I, I didn't have any paperwork with me. I couldn't even leave the country. My passport was back in New Orleans. So I was overstaying my visa and it was a lot of things happening to me. And I'm like, if I left now, regardless, they would ban me from coming back because visa was overstayed already. And my friend goes like, well, I kind of like it. Let's just try to you know, get our shit together and get documents, paperwork. I did not believe in it. I'm like, who the hell would give me, you know, right to leave here? Why? Like, you know, so I can just party it up? No, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. And but like, you know what? Let's try. So I tried, and just like Tanya said, like, you need to keep trying and go. It's not an easy process. It's. It took me three years, um, and during the process, you cannot leave the country, and I don't have any family here. It's just me. But I worked two, three, three jobs a day, and. Everything you can imagine was homeless at some point. Uh, wow. But the love for this, I don't know, like there's something in this energy that yeah. kept me going. Yep. A lot of love in this room, too. It is. Right. I, oh, absolutely. I know. Yeah. yeah. What I love about your story is how resilient and optimistic and positive you are through right. adversity. I think that's amazing. Also, something that we can all learn from. Mm -hmm. Can you say a couple of words? To everyone here about yeah. resiliency and how they can be resilient on their own scope. I think for me it was, as I said, there was a bad history with with when I was losing hope for humanity back in Russia, and I had to really overcome it by um, finding my voice first and um, being able to express it. And as Diva said once, make sure it's heard by people. And I think when I started sharing my experience and problems and whatever it is and just giving back, that's when I'm like, like, wow, this is such a great energy and it's physically made me capable of doing like more and just like move on and be happy with what you have and never just, I used to compare myself like, oh, this person's better looking, this one is richer, this, somebody has the car and that only depressed me. Now I was like, I'm enough, I'm, it is, I am what I am. And I am enough. You're yeah. going to have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Ruslan. So our next guest, our final guest, she's an animator for MTV Design. Uh, everyone give a warm round of applause to Florencia Masu. Affectionately known as Fonchi. All right. So, Fonchi, tell us a little bit about who you are and where, where you're from. Um, hello, everybody. I am from Chile. I was born in Chile. Uh, my parents were also born there. They came from uh, my father from Palestinian background, my mom from French Belgium. 
um, as everyone in the Americas is descended from somewhere else, technically. Mm -hmm. um, and then at three years old, I moved to England with my whole family. My dad had worked there previously and um, my older brother and sister had went, went to school there, half the year there, half the year in Chile. And so when that became a bit of a problem, we all decided to move there together. Um, then I lived there my whole life. I did all my schooling there. I was also raised in a very Catholic school, an all-girls Catholic boarding school. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I finished there, 18, I moved back to Chile for university. I went to a very good university in Chile. My parents did the best they could to give us the best education that they could. Can you tell us a little bit about the connection between London and Chile and why there is an immigration conduit there? Well, for me, I don't really know many other people who have that same kind of combination. Understood. Um, for, for, for me, it was because my father uh, went to the university here. He went to um, a school in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and then he started working in finance. And with, with that job, he went um, to London. Mm -hmm. was, he was the first um, Latin person in business, in finance, in the whole of the UK, mm -hmm. in London at least. Um, and... He loved life there, and and when he got married to my mom, you know, he, he they tried to make a big combination between England and Chile life, um, and then when that became a problem because of schooling, with when my brothers and sisters were born, right. um, well, they 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 asked them which one which one do you prefer, which one which school do you like better? They went to boarding school when they were three four years old. Wow! So for three them it four. was yeah it was they were very young. Yeah. Um, and they asked them, which which do you prefer? Do you want to stay in Chile? Do you want to go to England? And they were like, you know, we love England. So we all moved to England when me and my brother, my little brother was two or one at the time. Wow. Um, so we moved there and and they made a big deal about us having a lot of like, like know about the like Chilean culture and everything. We would fly there twice a year. Um, it was very much, very, very present in our lives. All the holidays we would spend, we would go back to Chile. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was... It was good times. <laughs> uh, what I love about your story is that you've been an immigrant in a couple of different nations, not just this one. Um, and between your, uh, your heritage in uh, Palestine, France, as well as uh, Chile, London, UK, and of course your connections here now, like what, do, what does that mean? Um, or can you speak a little bit about uh, what that diaspora means to you and what that cultural combination, how that culminates into your current being? Um, well, like Tanya, I'm also not a citizen here, but I, well, America is technically all of the Americas, not just the US, but um, I love it here, of course. Uh, and well, for me, like, you know, being a, a citizen of the world or however you might put it was like, very important to my parents um, and for me as, as well, of course. Uh, you know, I, I love learning people's cultures, like people who have diversity and that interests me a lot. Um, so yeah, the, just the combination of cultures was a huge, huge deal. I mean, I always kind of was the odd one. I mean, a little bit the odd one. I'm like very tall. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but uh, <laughs> so I always kind of stood out in in a certain way. But for me, that was that was never like a huge deal to like right. be different. It was always like trying to fit in. In, in Chile, people try and fit in. Uh, in my school, everyone was kind of had a type of diverse background. So. Yes, I was like the odd one out, but so was everyone in some sense. Right. And that's what I love about here, especially. Um, everyone has such an interesting story. Everyone has such a diverse background. Um, and they're all very original. And 
I love fitting in somewhere because like instead of trying to stand out, I love being like one more of the group here and right. not being the odd one out in, right. in that sense. That's one of the beautiful things about New York yeah. is that no one asks you where you're from, who you are, if anything, no one cares about you, which is actually kind of it's an awesome kind of, thing like, too. Refreshing. <laughs> yeah, it's Honestly, actually re really refreshing. It's really refreshing because everyone's like, oh cool, you have the story, so do I. So it's like- Yeah, it's like, it's oh, your so... story's interesting, oh, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of the time as well, it's like, oh, but like, you know, you're British, but I'm not British, I'm like Chilean. So right. for me, it's, it's like, you know, it doesn't really matter where you're from. Everyone has a individual story, no matter what, you right, know? Right. So um, as an animator, designer, um, you and I share a similar visual language as well as like a similar uh, um, approach to creativity, yeah. right? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the visuals that you saw as a kid and also what, how that manifested into why you wanted to be in New York? Sure. Um, I grew up watching a lot of Disney movies. Um, me and my little brother would watch The Lion King on repeat. My mother wanted to destroy the television because of it. <laughs> um, so yeah, Disney was like a huge part of my life and just the television, we, we never got, we had, my parents definitely made a big sacrifice to give us a good education and it was very important to them, but being able to have free time and, and helping cultures and helping other people and being able to express yourself in, in creative ways in that sense was also very important to them and to give back to people and, and everything. Um, but yeah, like cre creativity was always definitely encouraged. My sister is an artist as well. She's a designer. Um, and I I didn't really want to go through that, like down the artist route, the painter designer kind of route in that sense, because I was constantly compared to my sister in that mm. sense. So I definitely liked more the like nerdy technical side of things, <laughs> um, which is why I, I think I went through the the kind of behind the scenes route yeah. of things. Um, and I was very involved in theater in school. I was very, I liked the technical side of right. things of the theater. Um, Sandbags and things exactly. like that. Exactly, the, the, yeah. the lighting, the sound. Right, right, right. Oh, there's a Phantom of the Opera, I gotta exactly, get him out of here. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All that, the hard, the hard work. Yeah, yeah, the, the real work <laughs> the in real theater. Work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I loved that more than like being on stage, although I, I sing and stuff, so I, I like like performing, but. Yeah. But definitely, I like the behind the scenes side of it better. Um, and you know, my it was very important for my dad to like, for, and for my my mom as well, of course, for us to go back to Chile. My older brother and sister were kind of a little bit forced to go back, yeah. or very much encouraged to, um, because I was a, a middle child. I guess I was a little bit more ignored, um, in a good way though for me. I guess I was a, li a lot more free to be able to do what I wanted, and I always wanted to come to the U.S. to. Yeah to study here, to be able to live the American dream right. and like, you know, let let like the creativity flow in with all the amazing inspiration you get here. Yeah. And and yeah, I just, I always had in my mind that this is where I had to be to be able to achieve that properly. Right. Can you tell the beautiful people here uh, a little bit about what your interpretation of home is and what home means to you as someone, as a global citizen, hmm. someone that's lived all over the world, yeah. and as a person who sought a home here, yeah. with a lot of people that seek homes here. Yeah. What does that mean to you? It's it's such a tough question whenever someone asks me, like, what is home for you? So where is home? Chile, UK, like, for me, home is wherever you make it to be. Um, home is, you know, my 
my, my parents live half the year in Chile, half the year in England. My sister lives in Spain. My brother lives in London. My other brother lives in Chile. I mean, we're all over the place. So, like, of course, Chile is, will always be a home for me, but so will the UK. Yeah. And right now I'm here and this is what I have to make my home and I gladly make it my home. And being able to, I'm so fortunate because of being able to make friends and and create a home wherever I am mm -hmm. is is just, I'm so fortunate to have that. Like my, yeah. I have my little New York family and, and you know, you, you just make it your own, I guess. Yeah, you make it your own. Yeah. Fonchi, thank you so thank much. You. All right, and we can we can tuck in just a little bit now. We can we can bring it a little closer. So everybody, uh, we're going to open up the panel just for a little bit longer. Um, of course, I want to. I'm very mindful of everyone's schedules, so we are open for questions. Greg, uh, I have a question for Ruslan. And uh, just curious, how you fell into editing? Just based on the story, you're just. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, great question. <laughs> it's a great question. The story was pretty much a promo, you know. The tea. Uh, I actually, while I was in, in school, uh, there was some wild TV competition for the local channel. Uh, it was called TV Model or something like that, and uh, you were supposed to be on camera and do the forecast, weather forecast, and I did it. <laughs> wow, that's when I realized I don't like to be in front of a camera. But then somebody noticed me and they're like, oh, we need a DJ on a radio. So I actually did the uh, radio gig for a bit, for a year. And, um, and I started working with... You did a radio loop. gig? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was a radio DJ that I actually hosted a show where people would call me and like curse in the, on the air and then I'm like, fuck. <laughs> but yeah, I did the radio and that's where I kind of started seeing my nerdy side. I'm like, oh, I actually like playing with sound design or like and did a little bit video on my own and then uh, I knew it, it, could, it would be media, it would be entertainment. Uh, by then, I already had. Uh, I was uh, pursuing masters in global economy because of my parents, of course. But like, I could feel it's it's coming. Sharita. Hi, I have a question, and I guess this is for anyone on the panel. Um, a lot of times, as an African American, um, if I was to go to Africa, they, even though my heritage is from Africa, they would call me an American. Um, I'm just curious to know if you go back to your native country, are you um, received as a native, or do they? Um, count you as an American. I, I can feel that for a hot second. Like, I went back to the Philippines a couple months ago. Um, my first time I'd been there since I was 10 years old. Um, and uh, everyone there, it was really interesting from a cultural perspective because I hadn't seen so many people that look like me in the exact same space, walking down the street, talking a language that I've heard since childhood, although I don't really speak the language. I had this similar experience when I was in China a couple years ago where I stepped into a cab and then the... The, the drivers think, uh, they, they speak to me in uh, Cantonese or Mandarin, and I have to stop and think, oh, wait, no, I don't speak this language. Uh, I found that it was more, the more overwhelming feeling was that I was among people that just accepted me for who I was at face value. And uh, they did consider me American, but I think th that particular nation has a lot of haves and have-nots. So there's a different class system happening there, which is implied within the uh, socioeconomic um, conditions. But for, for me, I, I, I never saw it there as a, as a plus or a minus. I just saw it as like, here's an extension of my identity in this place that made me just feel more like I was home.
So, to add to that, like yeah. when we talk with my family, when we say home, it always means Ireland. It never right. like means Patchogue, where I am now, or Babylon, or anything like that. So, I never feel like a, a weirdo when I go back. I mean, I could speak to it. I mean, when I go back, they'll speak Patois to me, mm. and I'm like, I respond in English like, nah. Nah. <laughs> I can understand you, but I can't speak language because we've never spoken in my, you know, my house, but I understand it. But they're like, you're Americanized? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, they'll just go along the day. So it's not something that they point out, but it's just like, just the way it is. Sorry, can I piggyback? I think that's so interesting because yeah. also coming from the same exact diaspora, I think for me, they pointed it out a lot. Mm. Like, even my mother would be like, you're American. Never forget that. Yeah. And school, and they're like, hey, you're Jamaican. Never right. That. So I think that's wow. interesting. That no, my mother would say, we're American. That's why we don't speak it in the house. No, my mother would say, you are. Oh, you are. Oh, she'll say that. Oh, okay. No. Yeah. me, it was like very much, we, we speak Spanish like Chileans, like fluently, and we speak English like a British person. So you can never really tell unless you, I actually physically say something, you know? So it was always just... Unless I say something, it's always like, oh, I'm Chilean, but, or something, or, you know? Oh, the but. Yeah, it's that's the, always the yeah, but. Yeah, the ellipses, but. Yeah. yeah. Yes? For the parents that made a big move, like, how did they know North Bronx was West Indies? And how did you know your dad to go, like, Babylon to, like, seek a job? It's where the plane dropped him off. <laughs> 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 and he was like, okay, this will do. <laughs> Well, that's where everybody, like, you have to think about there's pockets of places. So if you went to Brooklyn, I mean, it's gentrified now, sorry. But <laughs> there's, like, pockets in Bed-Stuy and where it was where all us Swindians gone. So you have friends, you have family that went there, so you just went where your culture is, you know? If you went to North Bronx, you're going to see you know, a ton of Jamaican restaurants and different places where you can go and get your foods and all that kind of stuff. You're not going to go to, you know, Upper West Side because you're not going to get that. So you go where your home or your people are. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where, you know, where it carries back. Gavin. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you guys all have sort of like interesting stories and backgrounds as well as your parents. Um, where do you, or what kind of advice would you give to maybe, I don't know if you guys are parents or anything, but what do you kind of instill or get, have advice for like future generations who are kind of growing up with a lot of diversity? How do you kind of convey those struggles or uh, what they're going through is probably like a little bit different time. Uh, what would you, advice would you instill in them to kind of, uh, you know, showcase what you've gone through in order to get where you guys are now? It's a good question. What do you I instill in your kids? Yeah, yeah. What would you instill in your children or future children? Well, it would be completely different from what my parents did to me. So that's like kind of a learning. You know, like I was saying, we were told mm -hmm. to just be quiet about it. And, you know, I'm married now and thankfully he's not 100% Irish. So now our 23andMe is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm excited to bring a new culture into uh, a very bland family. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Does anybody have children here? I don't think I have children here. So um, watching my nephew grow up has been an experience because he they he's completely Americanized and like has because we don't cook, you know, Jamaican food unless it's like a special occasion and different things like that. But you know, I, a lot of times when I was growing up, I kind of like held it back. And now because I'm in my twenty, you know, later on in life, and my parents moved to Florida, I miss the home cooking and stuff like that. So I embrace my heritage a little bit more and want to be closer to it. So it's going to have to be more of a diligent effort to introduce them into the culture going back, talking about it, um, because it's like, 
you know, it is becoming more of a diverse place where you don't really kind of talk about it unless you're in those countries, especially if you're America. So just thinking ahead, it's going to be have some. It's going to be something where I have to like work hard at making sure that they understand that. Because there's like no Jamaican culture besides foods and stuff like that. Like, you know, I don't know if you have something in Chile where you're just like a certain kind of holiday or this and that. There's not that. It's very Americanized, you know. Yeah. But I think even on like just us, we're all so different, but we have surprisingly like or maybe not surprising yeah. but so many similarities with like just within us so i think like just being able to listen to people and like where they're from and their different experiences you can you can find similarities in that or if you don't have similarities you can learn from that and have another perspective even more so on on their life i don't have kids yet but i have two rules and one is that i will always always continue to cook my grandmother's black bean recipe always <laughs> till i get it right one day and we're definitely speaking Spanish in my house. Even if I have to bring a nanny in to help, like go. we are speaking Spanish. And any other language that might come along. Like, cool. I have a question. So does anyone here, um, who here has felt like they've had to use the term immigrant as, as, a, uh, as a point of pride? I think that there is an interesting stigmatization with the term. Um, obviously, there are, there's a fence and there's two sides to that fence. Has anyone here had the experience where they've had to overtly lean into it or overtly identify with the term immigrant in order to use it as a source of strength? I, I think I did in college. I, again, I grew up in a, in a world that looked like this. Like everybody was everybody. It wasn't really an issue. I didn't worry about it. And then it, it kind of never occurred to me that I was other because everybody kind of was other. And I went to college and almost everybody was white. Almost everybody was very, very wealthy. There was a huge population from Seattle. But other than that, everybody was kind of, you know, East Coast. And a lot of the students of color, a lot of the, of the 13 students of color, <laughs> most of them were international. And there, I think there were like five of us, really, that were... American, and it would come up a lot in this very hippie liberal conversations of, you know, trying to make sure, and everybody was very PC, mm -hmm. trying to make sure that, like, everybody felt okay, and, you know, we weren't pushing our students of color into the margins and all of that, and a lot of it for me was being like, yeah, I'm from Manhattan, but also, like, my family's from here and here, and I'm from here, and, like, just kind of having to almost speak as in as an American immigrant, just to make the point of the fact that like not everyone, not every student of, of color at Hampshire is an international student kind of deal. A lot, like a lot though. Yeah, wow. Everyone, please a round of applause. Thank you to our guests. Yeah. There's a ton of food and alcohol here, please. Can we? help uh help engage in a group caloric intake so that was awesome and a ton of fun also i have a small confession to make that was really scary walking the door on that one i don't know if any of you guys have ever done a live event uh but that's scary enough but it's also uh, a little bit more intimidating when you're doing it in front of the people that you have to live and work with every day but everyone made it so easy and also uh, misha antonia tanya ruslan Florencia, they just really came with amazing stories and I felt so enriched by by their energy and 
by uh, by everything they had to express so i'm really grateful for that and i hope everyone had a solid takeaway from it so that was episode 34 another special drop uh but you can find this podcast at apple podcast spotify anchor fm stitcher soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts please rate us drop us a review it helps spreads the good word go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes on Instagram, we're at FirstGenBurden. You can find me, your host, at Rich underscore T-U. Don't forget the underscore. Thanks again to everyone at MTV, VH1, CMT, and Logo for making this happen. This is the first time I've done one of these at my home base, so it was a really special one. Thanks to everyone that made it that special. Look out for another special drop or two before the end of the year. Before we go into Season 5, be safe, everyone. First Gen Burden. Bye.